0: feel like a school teacher when I do that, I'm sorry. Welcome to this edition of the Literary and Scientific Society. Uh, so we will start off, as always, with private members of business. Does anyone have an issue that they've seen in the papers or anything this week that they'd like to see debated in the chamber? Anything that they'd like to start a conversation about? Anything at all? I think you said you had one, Mr. Spratt. I would ask the society what they make of Bob Dylan being awarded a Nobel Prize for Literature. What do you does anyone have an opinion on that? Yes, you madam.
1: Uh, I don't know the official term, so I'm sorry. But um, I find, I think it's actually a great thing because um, Bob Dylan is not known for his singing ability. <laughs> 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 yeah, know.
2: He's known for his words that speak to people. So anybody who has words that speak to people um, is does
1: deserve... Some form of information Fair. And that the fact that it's not arranged into stanzas and that, or into traditional poetry, it doesn't mean that it's not valid.
0: Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Does anyone have would, would anyone like to respond to that? Tear down Bob Dylan? You would like to tear down <laughs> <laughs> Bob Dylan? <laughs> <laughs> it's a pleasure. Um, well merited
2: but sets the
0: um, intriguing. intriguing. Would anyone like to follow that trait of thought or
3: rebuke that trade of thought? Anyone? Or is it M&M should get the next one? <laughs> Sorry?
0: I think M&M should get the next one. <laughs> I mean, you can make that an official motion if you want. <laughs> I think I can. Why not? Would you like to, would you like to, to propose uh, a phrasing for the motion? <laughs> I'd like nominate M&M for the Peace yeah, definitely not fixed, right? <laughs> Does anyone like to have any addendums to that motion, or shall we just go to vote on that ludicrous motion? That. Does anyone like to second that motion, sorry, I I I I I'm surprised at you, Okay, yes. yeah, right. so we'll go to vote on that motion, this house would give Eminem a Nobel Prize in English Literature, that's it. Not biochemistry or anything like that. Would anyone like to vote in favour of that? Say aye. 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 (laughs) Would anyone like to vote against that? Say nay.
4: Nay. Nay.
0: That's cool! nays have it there. That's (laughs) fine. Move on. on. Any (laughs) abstentions on that motion? You think it's utterly ludicrous (laughs) to say? I think the nays have it there. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Anyone else have any other private members' business they'd like to put before the House?
4: User. What do we think of the debate? What, the this the, a bit? No, the presidential
0: debate. Oh right. The <laughs>
2: lesser
0: <the laughs> debate. Um, anyone want to offer an opinion on that? Yourself, Mr. Button. Oh, hello,
2: everyone. Because I mean,
0: you would say that.
3: Yeah. <laughs> hello, everyone. By default. Yeah. Well, that's that's no. chase the Republican yeah. nominee, it's part of it. <laughs> Yourself
5: sir. I think that it was with risk of dividing yeah. early
3: before the debate started. Um, I think it just proved once again that it is a choice
5: of two And yet again in the United States, I think Bernie Sanders has been a far better nominate.
2: <laughs>
5: <good. That's> <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm writing rage against the system. Is so <laughs> uh, Supplementary,
6: do we think that today's video about um, Trump saying that he would date a 10-year-old in 10 years' time is going to be a yeah. presidential run-ender? Or... We've
0: done Anything in? Would anyone like to go for yeah, their faith in humanity <laughs> to yeah. be a
7: metal geek too? Can I just ask a clarifying question? The 10-year-old in 10 years time, does that mean you'll be 20 or 10 years to be old? Well, yeah, but he's he was saying because... It's still questionable! He's But <laughs> 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 the idea is so, there now, he just yeah. needs
0: to so, wait so, the 10 oh, years yeah. to kind
2: of...
7: And yes. 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 it's not right,
5: it's not right. Can right. um, we
7: move
5: on? Yes, we'll Could I propose a motion to move on? Very yes. <laughs> right.
0: Well then we'll move yes. on to President's questions. Would anyone yeah, like to one ask one. No. <laughs> Would anyone like to ask me any questions? Anybody will. Yourself, sir. Uh, will we ever return to the Senate? Uh, next week, next actually. Call, yeah. It's <laughs> been uh, stolen from us by the party <coughs> Ie the university uh, to do with it what they will. Uh, I'm not sure I like that. Uh, apparently, the Orange Society have occupied it for a week. So uh, occupied.
2: Good
0: choice that? <laughs> <friend of mine.
2: laughs>
0: oh oh Does anyone have any other questions for me to like to give me another opportunity to thoroughly embarrass myself? Mr. Buhe. Mr. President, what did you have for breakfast?
2: Oh, oh, good
0: I had, had a bagel with uh, melted Gloucester red cheese on it. Oh,
2: oh, oh. Oh. Don't use that word. <laughs> um
0: Yes, so further uh, attempt attempts to embarrass myself. Anything else? No to me. I'm actually we'll do a move on for that. Uh, what do we have next? Oh yes, business. That 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 old old chain. Um, so yeah, apparently we are doing an election tonight for uh, the position of our external convener. I don't know if anyone has noticed, but there's there's a gaping hole in our uh, our council that needs to be filled by someone. Uh, I we are going to be voting tonight on that position. Uh, there is precisely one candidate uh, to, to include from uh, reopen nominations. Uh, so. Because there's only one candidate, we're going to sort of quicken up the process and just do a vote by hand. So, uh, before I do that, I'd like to welcome the, the, the candidate to the floor, Mr. Ryan Neal, to give a one-minute pitch on why he thinks he's the best person out of all the other people running for the position. <laughs> well,
7: I'm quite surprised I'm the only candidate as far as I'm aware like Five dollars initially. It's a shame Richie pulled out, it could have been interesting. But anyway, uh, yes, pitch starting now. Um, I am Assistant Administrator of Victim Support. I deal with uh, a lot of organizational things, a lot of confidential, sensitive information. So being on point, being logical, and being organized is very important to my job. Um, past that, in dealing with large groups of people, um, I have been a STEM Net Ambassador teaching computer science to kids, uh, BBC made a digital campaign the last time uh, I was doing that, that was in 2015. And it involved me having to deal with large numbers of people, process all ages from I think between 6 and 18, some Belfast net people were there as well, so I was older. But generally speaking, um, a wealth of organizational information uh, and in dealing with uh, clients both uh, here and nationally and internationally in terms of purchase orders. So um, that's my pitch in a minute, I guess.
0: Thank you for that, Mr. Neil. Uh, Yes, would anyone like to pose any questions to the candidates? Please give him a harder job than this. Please. (laughs) Somebody. You, sir.
8: Um, What do you think of your opponents?
7: (laughs) 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 Calculous void of any and all points.
0: I was waiting for you to say that if if you were in office, they'd be in jail or something.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they are in
7: jail. (laughs) That's what I'm not to (laughs) say. I may or may not have a limited
0: competition. Uh, On on that note, I mean, if if there's no other questions, I suppose we'll move to a vote. All in favour of the candidate, with amazing levels of democratic legitimacy, say aye. Aye. I, that's not, I'm just registering, you're, I'm not actually voting, I'm not allowed to. All uh, against the person, say nay. Nay. <laughs> Anyone who's really not happy with this set of circumstances at all, and doesn't want to vote on the motion, say, nah. Mm. Fair, fair, okay, then I believe that welcome aboard the council, uh, Mr Neil, as our next general convener. Hogging the line uh, Yes, and then the next announcement is uh, we had interviews for our uh, first year representative on Monday when nominations closed and through a very long, diligent process that lasted literally several hours. Uh, we chose a candidate for the role of first year representative and he is sitting here before us. His name is Mr Matthew Bryson. I'd like to welcome you to the council as well. And on that note, I will hand over to uh, my uh, colleague, Mr. Rob Whitehurst, uh, to read the minutes of the last debate, which was, I've totally forgotten. This, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> nice. would, be tra- would declassify transgenderism as a mental health disorder. Uh, so welcome to the board.
4: Good evening, everyone. I hope we are all well. <laughs> The third ordinary meeting of the Literary and Scientific Society at Queen's University Belfast took place on the sixth of October and was attended by forty-six members. Private members' business was heard from Mr. Johnny Finlay, who wished to congratulate President Murphy on a successful start to his term, as well as his ability to stay in possession of power longer, the former UKIP leader Diane James. <laughs> Amidst some confusion as to the identity of the MEP for South East England, Mr. Finley called for the motion of, This House does not know who Diane James is. In a proud display of the House's knowledge of non-consequential politicians, the motion was defeated. (coughs) Technology Officer Chris Spratt then asked the House if a citizen of the world really was a citizen of nowhere, in reference to the comments made by Prime Minister Theresa May in midweek. While some members of the House protested, Mr. Finley urged that on this occasion we should all bow to Chairman May. In further UK business, Mr. Whitehurst asked the President to wish Stephen Wolfe a full recovery from his injury, as a result of some spicy lad EU banter chat that escalated... <laughs> to the end of the <laughs> this culminated in the motion, This house would send Stephen Wolfe a bouquet of white lilies, which tragically did not pass. <laughs> President's questions were heard from Rachel Ireland, Chris Pratt and Ryan Neal, all concerning constitutional matters, before Mr. Finlay finally asked President Murphy what he had for breakfast. Making a break from his previous answers of kebab pizza, Chitco, and an egg sandwich at 4pm, <coughs> Mr. Murphy announced that his breakfast that morning consisted of eggs and bacon. Without further ado... Without further ado, Mr. Pre- uh, Mr. President I announced the evening's motion. This house believes transgenderism should no longer be considered a psychological disorder. Opening for the proposition was Rachel Ireland, who began by stating the OED definition of gender, which is a category to which one is assigned by self or others, before going on to define mental illness as a disease of the brain, mind, or personality. She claimed that one's identity and personality is decided by them and them alone, whereas no individual has control over disease and mental illness. <coughs> She claimed that to tell trans people that there is something wrong with them and that they have a disorder is not the right way to go about getting effective help or ensuring a healthy state of being. She concluded that this this was a problem which must be solved rather than combated. Opening the opposition was Mr. Ryan Neal, who claimed that the proposition was taking a social view of the motion rather than a medical one which was needed. He defined a disorder as a significant clinical disturbance that reflects a dysfunction, before going on to clarify that transgenderism itself isn't classified as a disorder, but gender dysphoria is. He rallied against the proposition for being reckless in their advice, saying that, uh, saying that, the response, saying that a response in a diagnostic setting and tone of a doctor was the best way to help people who are suffering from gender dysphoria. He included by using an autism diagnosis as an example of where sufferers aren't told that they are in any way wrong or less of a person, but rather as clinical confirmation that they will face difficulty in their lives. Concluding for the proposition was the main speaker, Mr. Phelan Hook. He opened by drawing drawing a distinction between psychological and neurological issues, and commented that dysphoria didn't necessarily mean discomfort. He asserted that at the end of the day, it was a case of doing what was best to ensure that someone does not feel in any way hindered or in a position of illness due to their condition. He concluded by saying that labeling one with the title of disordered is incredibly harmful is incredibly harmful and only leads to individuals being pigeonholed. Concluding for the opposition and so the debate was Mr. Johnny Finley, who wished to make it clear that classifying someone as disordered did not necessarily mean that that person should be looked down upon. He claimed that in the propositions view of disorder being an offensive and belittling label, individuals suffering with disorders such as depression and schizophrenia would somehow be looked upon as lesser because of their situation. He concluded by asking the House what messages this would send to sufferers of mental health and asserted that merely making transgenderism a social phenomenon rather than a medical and clinical one, would be letting down many who require assistance. Questions were heard from Ashley Kane, Sheepra Dixon, Sam, Emma and former Green Party candidate for West Belfast, Ellen Murray. A vote was taken based on House of Opinion prior to the debate which read 23 ayes, 1 nay, and 15 abstentions. And finally, a casting vote based on Speaker's performance was taken which read 4 ayes, 13 nays, and 10 abstentions. May I take the minutes address? Aye. Thank you. Um,
0: Thank you for that. And on a, a lighter note, uh, well, I'd say a lighter note, uh, the debate, the refugee crisis, I was said the refugee <laughs> The motion this evening is: uh, This House believes that European states have a moral duty to uh, accept refugees. Um, this motion is co-hosted with the Amnesty Society, both in Northern Ireland and here at QUB, um, and to sort of fill you in on the sort of the context of this debate and the role of the Amnesty in that. Uh, I welcome our chair for this evening, uh, Mr. Malou Gray. Okay, well, hello,
1: I'd like to thank you for inviting me in lieu of anyone terribly important from the office. Um, so I've been involved with Amnesty at, back when I was at Queen's uh, myself and subsequently I've been doing work then for about the last year in the office so I've followed refugee issues in Northern Ireland and more widely as I think we all have uh, for, for a while now. So I'm going to just say that I'm looking forward to hearing all your points on um, on what is a particularly interesting motion um, in its phrasing that states have a moral duty to uh, accept refugees. Um, I think that that's probably a bit tougher than a legal duty. (laughs) But I'm not going to express any bias. So so first of all, the wider context, which again, figures that I'm sure a few of you are going to bring up, um, it's estimated that there are around 60 million displaced people all over the world at this point which amnesty amongst others claim with or without reason um, is the highest number since world war ii and displaced persons might include people that are internally di- displaced within their own states um, so the un have said that there are around 21 million refugees but only 14 percent of those are present in countries that where the gdp would be in the upper quartile worldwide. So, rich countries, for want of a better phrase, um, are sort of, you know, in terms of numbers, they're doing a bit, but there's it's very much open for debate as to whether they should be doing more. Um, that's my point. <laughs> uh, so, Amnesty's approach to the international crisis would be to take a sort of case-by-case approach and then also to approach summits like the Global Refugee Summit that we saw last month. Um, Amnesty weren't terribly pleased with it because there is a lack of outcome at summits is the general consensus among agencies that are working with refugees and that lack of outcome may or may not present a moral Oral ambag, ah, ambiguity. Ambiguity. So Syria, obviously, Amnesty have been lobbying on that. uh, We've got 5 million of the 60 million displaced people, or 5 million of the 21 million refugees are Syrians, and that is... um, that has been brought up with the UK government time and again. They made commitments last year which, in retrospect, they're still woefully behind on those commitments, um, unless you already do have issues with uh, the UK government's commitments to do things and then they're not having followed up on it. So quite aside from a legal uh, sort of argument, You've got the moral argument of politicians making commitments. So I look forward to hearing about that from all of you. And also, I I assume that we might hear some, some things about like detention, forced destitution, and health care issues. So on that note, I'll pass it over to the proposers.
0: With that, we welcome to the first speaker, Mr. Robert Marsden. Thank you.
5: Okay, so um, first of all, thank you very much um, to the and of course to Amnesty uh, for hosting this uh, very important and of course uh, topical debate. Um, as the kind of uh, as someone introducing the um, the motion, um, I think it's important that we get our, our definitions correct. Uh, Refugees, asylum seekers, migrants, these are words that are often used interchangeably, uh, although there are differences. Um, According to the United Nations Refugee Agency, refugees are people fleeing conflict or persecution. A person who is forced to leave their country of origin and seek protection in another country because of a well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, or political opinion. They're defined and protected in international law, and must not be expelled or returned to situations where their life and freedom are at risk. Now, I did say there about international law, and I know that this debate, as quite rightly pointed out by, uh, by Filla is about international or it's about a moral duty rather than the, the legal kind of obligation. Um, I do think it's important, though, that we talk about the, the international kind of law. Um, at the root of that is, obviously, a moral obligation. Laws do not just make themselves. There has to be a moral aspect to those, to those laws. Um, also, let's talk about this idea of morality. Um, I don't think we want to get into a debate about kind of moral theories. You know, If you want to go into Hobbes and Immanuel Kant about different theories of morality, I don't think we want to do that. Um, so I think what, what we're basically saying on this side of the house is that we believe that it is right uh, that um, European states accept refugees. And I'll go on to talk a bit more about that now. Um, as pointed out by Fernando, there are 21 million refugees um, across the world. Um, I'd like to focus specifically on Syria, although it is important that we mention there are other countries, such as um, Afghanistan, Iraq, Kosovo, Albania, Pakistan, Eritrea, Nigeria, Iran, and Ukraine, to name but a few. Um, But I will focus on the Syrian refugee crisis because I do think it is important. Um, It is why we are debating this issue. The the refugee crisis, crisis, so to speak, as it's been formed in the mainstream press, is a, a kind of recent development. But the fact that, that Western countries haven't accepted their fair share of refugees is not a new thing. Again, the idea of Pakistan, Eritrea, all those Albania, Kosovo, this has been on for years. Okay? So this is not a new thing. But with, Syria, with the crisis in Syria getting worse and worse, it has been highlighted more so now than ever. And as rightly pointed out, um, we are facing probably one of the worst humanitarian, if not the worst humanitarian crisis, since um, the Second World War. Um, There are about 4.8 million refugees uh, from Syria who have left Syria, um, fleeing war and persecution. Uh, Since the civil war started in Syria, about 386,000 people have been killed. 386,000 people have been killed. Of that 386,000, 14,000 are children. 14,000 children killed in the Syrian civil war. Think about that for a second. These are children who will never have the same opportunities, the same life that we we have. A life's cut far too short. According to Dr. Christine Latif, who's a World Vision Response Manager for Turkey and Northern Syria, she said the children of Syria have have experienced more hardship, devastation and violence than they charged half in a thousand lifetimes. On that point. No. (laughs) We have all, all, uh, I'm sure, been left heartbroken at the picture's of uh, young children looking aimlessly at camera lenses after their homes, their livelihoods, their families have been destroyed. And I'm sure we've all seen the photographs of Aleppo and Damascus and other cities completely torn apart with no infrastructure uh, and no hope. Although it seems that these photographs are, are not new, and we have been seeing these photographs for a long time in the Middle East, and compassion fatigue probably has set in, it is important that we look at these photographs and we think about the people behind these photographs. When we see the rubble in Aleppo and Damascus and Homs, that we see these are people's lives, people's livelihoods. Also, let's think about the people who are fleeing this. Fleeing this, this destitution. These are amongst, amongst the most destitute people in the world. And as rightly pointed out, we have only accepted, if not 0.21% point, not point of the British population are, are, uh, are refugees. Uh, Turkey, Lebanon, jo- Jordan, Egypt, and Iraq have all accepted about 4.8 million refugees. Europe has accepted 1 million. In a population of 500 million people, we've accepted less than 1 million refugees. It's ludicrous, absolutely Ludicrous. And just recently, uh, Donald Tusk, EU president, uh, said that Europe is close to the limit on refugee numbers. Let's be very clear that this is a response to the rise of the far right in Europe. We've seen a U-turn uh, on, from German Chancellor Angela Merkel um, on the amount of refugees being let into Germany. This is a response to the alternative for Deutschland. We've seen that Britain has not lived up, no, has not lived up to, uh, to what it should have because of the rise. Of, of UKIP and of far right wing populist parties. As seen in, in France and Francois Hollande with the, the Front National, today the French government say that they're going to close the Calais uh, jungle, as it is, as it is known. Um, this is a response to the rise of far right fascist groups no, uh, in, uh, in Europe. Um, this, is not, this, this is not a case that we don't have enough room, it's a case that there is not the political will to achieve this on that point Go on with that. <laughs> yeah,
6: the political will isn't there because the politicians are there to rule the public that they have, and they know that if they start taking in an absolute ton of refugees that it's not great for social cohesion. You're creating a scenario in which those refugees will be discriminated against and possibly attacked, just like they have in this country. So shouldn't the politicians think about the pragmatic solutions
5: rather than just your sentiments? Well, no, I actually think on that point, when you talk about social cohesion and, and, and integration, that surely the government should, should do more to help social cohesion and, and integration that is not a reason not to accept these people, and these people are fleeing war and persecution. To say that because of of, of this problem of social cohesion that we shouldn't bring them in, I think that's that's a cop out. And the government, it's not a case of just bringing these people in uh, and leaving them there. It is about integrating them into their into society. It's about giving them a chance and a hand up, no, because they've not got long left. Uh, I think that the. But I want to just say in the, my last point before I give up um, the floor is that at uh, the aspect at uh, the, the key aspect of this debate is that those fleeing war and persecution, they may have a different skin color, they may have a different language, or they may worship a different god. But they are no different than any of us. Call me an extremist, but I ask the question, why is I, as a 21-year-old white male here in Belfast, why do I have a right to a more prosperous life than someone uh, in Syria or Eritrea or Somalia or whatever it is? This is the debate about equality. Make no bones about that. And when people are fleeing their homes and livelihoods in search of not just a better life, it's not a case of they're just searching for a better life. It's a case of if they stay, they may not survive. So I say that we have to not just look after our own, but we have to open our hearts and open our borders to people fleeing uh, uh, persecution and, uh, and conflict. And I am very proud uh, to commend this motion uh, to the House.
0: Thank you very much for that uh, very impassioned speech, Mr Merho. Uh, and now we uh, give by the floor uh, the first speaker for the opposition, Mr uh, Ajay Merhoff.
9: I'm going to look at two main strands in the course of my argument and um, there's um, there's no way I can you know, there's, no, there's no way I can I can I can match uh, the energy of our colleague here. So you, know, you just to, so I'm afraid you just have to listen to me. <laughs> um, the, the first strand is uh, to what extent are we actually helping these people by taking them in? Uh, we've taken these refugees and rescued them from uh, persecution and a brutal civil war, uh, and now what? I, I just don't understand what the long-term plan is for these people, um, and I'm in, um, in this speech I'll, I'll focus on the ones that, that Northern Ireland has taken. Um, um, again, looking at the, looking at the uh, refugees that we've taken from Syria, um, what are we you know, what are we doing with them? Are we temporarily keeping them out of harm's way, uh, so that they can eventually go back to Syria and help help rebuild their country uh, once once the war is over? Um, goodness knows when that is going to be, um, or will they be permanently integrated into the fabric of our community? And, and how are we going to help them do this uh, to become part of society? Uh, getting a job, for example, is, is difficult enough for, for, for local people, never mind for these people who, uh, many, uh, many of whom don't have qualifications that we would recognise, many of whom may not even be able to speak the language. Uh, what is life going to, be, going to be like in the long term for those who don't get into employment or education. If you don't, you end up not having purpose, having a purpose to their lives. Who uh, have no means of, who end up with no means of supporting themselves or their families. On that point, sir. Um, go ahead. Is it not better than death? Um, I, I'm coming to that. <laughs> <laughs> that. that is it's 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 a very valid point, But the situation that I've described is what I've been in myself, and and. Um, and, and trust me, I'd, r- I'd rather be—I'd rather be dead than than being than being in that situation. I know what I know what it's like to, to to live like that. And there's a good there's a good chance that we're going to simply end up replacing one form of hell with another. Um, taking a refugee seems to me to be done uh, as simply simply done without any any real forethought or any real or long-term planning. And what, and why is it that, that that the European states are taking all the heat? Uh, remember, this motion is that the House believes that European states have moral duty. Uh, why is why is nobody called upon the United States to take people? You know, they go, why to take to, you know, even airlift people if necessary. I haven't heard that. Uh, what about the, what what about the uh, the rich Arab and Gulf states? I know some some of them have, but you know, you know, you know the, the Emirates, Qatar. You know, and Saudi Arabia. You, how many people have they taken and You know, what, what, and who's putting pressure on them to take to take people who are geographic, uh, they're geographically much closer. I'm not uh, go ahead. Um, like, there's ten countries in the world that
3: host more than that account for two point five percent of the world's GDP, and they um, host more than eighty percent of the world's refugees. So although I agree that more countries in the Middle East should be doing their part, isn't our responsibility to look at our closest neighbors and ask what they're doing? Um,
9: OK, I hear you. Um, but the second strand of my argument, and <laughs> many of you aren't going to like what I've, what I've got to hear, um, it's, it's not right to talk about moral duties, because the moral, because I think the moral approach to this debate has, has completely lost perspective. Um, there's a sickening hypocrisy behind some of the moral indiga- indignation directed at those who would who would limit the intake of refugees. I remember when the First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, stood up in in Scottish Parliament last year and attacked, uh, quote unquote, the walk-on-by attitude of the UK government, and described how the images of the dead body of the child uh, Alan Cody uh, brought tears to her eyes. And soon after that, politicians, actors, and others. That We're queuing up uh, to to call on the UK and other European countries to take in more and more refugees. It became the cool thing, the fashionable thing to do. It's it's good PR. It's a good spin. Basically, what they're saying is, look at what wonderful people we are. Aren't we so generous and kind-hearted and compassionate? Well, no, thank you. Well, the reality is, That's not what we are. No, thank you. Uh, Our society is rotten to the core. We are selfish and mean-spirited, and we treat our fellow men, women, and children in our country, in our own society, like dirt. Like absolute dirt. No, thank you. No, thank you. Uh, You only have to turn on your news to see that. We use it... No, thank you. We use this illusion, and to me it sometimes feels like a delusion. Uh, we use this illusion of being open and welcome, welcoming to refugees so that we can feel morally superior to, to everybody else. In fact, no, it's worse than that. We use it, I've actually used it as a stick to beat people with. Uh, the Hungarian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, was savaged on Twitter merely for saying his country uh, could not cope with the sheer magnitude of the refugee influx. And it um, it feels like. Uh, and, and I must be clear. This is this is this is this is with reference to to the to the react to the emotional reaction to the to the refugee crisis rather than the refugees themselves. It's, it feels like any challenge to the orthodoxy of of taking more refugees cannot be tolerated and has, and has to be crushed as briefly as possible. Um, also, it's. Not, also it's, not quite a, it's also not quite all it seems. Um, when, a, when, when, a group of, when a group of refugees at the Hungarian-Croatian border were told they couldn't go to the European country of their choice, they started rioting. If a group of young men in Northern Ireland started doing that, we'd be going top-top. Isn't that disgraceful? There are scenes where women were literally throwing their children like a football over a border fence. If a Northern Irish woman did that with a child, the police and social services would be on her like a shot. And yet, with refugees, being, we say all, it's simply a reflection of the horrors and traumas that we've been through. Um, I submit that our moral assessment of this situation is, is grossly distorted. Thank you. Thank you very much,
2: America. Uh,
0: can I get another round of applause for our, our main speaker? Proposition
1: is Jason
3: Clinton, on the board. Well, good evening Chairperson, fellow debaters, esteemed opposition, and audience. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm also going to make, um, my thanks for their, for their collaboration on this event with Amnesty QB and Amnesty wider. Um, I'm here tonight to explain why Amnesty QB <coughs> in particular believes that European nations have a moral duty to take in refugees. And why we believe that Britain's current plan is setting itself on the wrong side of history and condemning desperate people to fend for themselves outside Fortress Europe. So, to be honest, I would have thought that there's broad agreement on this topic. Um, on a purely human level, when you have people fleeing a brutal civil war, a horrific dictator like Assad, uh, barrel bombs, chemical weapons, and more, and when many of them are children who have lost everything they've lost their family, their friends, their school, their houses. I would have thought it's only natural to admit that we have a moral duty to help these people, as we have throughout history. Um, when we have, <laughs> but yeah, so I would have thought that European nations' moral duty was clear and present and evident. Um, after all, this is the worst moment, the humanitarian crisis of our lifetime, um, and the previous speaker just wanted to mention this. Talks about a long-term plan for these people. These people have no long-term if we don't help them. They're like, there's the uncertainty in wartime about planning for these people's lives. It's no excuse not to be compassionate and help them. Um, I'm sorry the seems to just be such a little faith in humanity in the previous thing. Um, and I also feel any. Oh, go ahead. Um, well, it is important to at least lay out some sentence of a plan. I mean, I read
10: yesterday the German government's already spent 600 billion pounds mm. debt that not only well, this generation's children be paying. Their children's children will realistically still be paying off that debt. And if that if that physical burden grows, steady,
3: everyone's going to be left out of the moral equation here. So. I agree that there does need to be a plan, but um, I mean, at the end of the day, if someone's house is on fire and they come to your door, you let them in. You don't ask, well, what's your long-term plan for getting your house back in order? I um, would, I would also say that um, when it comes to the debt and the money, I'm, you know, my tax store, when I get the tax, um, are going to have to pay. Um, then I'm very happy to pay that. That's compassion. (coughs) We called it a compassion tax. I would be very happy in paying it. So, after all, yes, this is the worst humanitarian crisis of our lifetimes. 11 million Syrians have been killed, forced to flee their country. Um, And this doesn't include the destitution, human trafficking that all these people go through when they're both getting here and when (coughs) they arrive here. Um, So, people are crying out for our help. And when most of us would help a friend or indeed actually a stranger in need, why would we not help these people just because they're from a different part of the world? Go ahead.
9: Yeah, I would admit that my, my, my experience of, of life is that us wouldn't help me, help me, help people around us. So I, I appreciate most of the people here don't share that point of view, but I, so I'm just...
3: Yeah, I, I take that point. And that is just a different, probably, ideological point. But um, I mean, I just have basic faith in humanity, I can, You know, if, I, if, I, if one of your friends or one of your someone stood up in this room and said, I have a problem most people's natural reaction, would be, how can I help that person? Um, and that's what Amnesty tries to do and that's what activism tries to do for myself as well. Um, So people are crying out for our help and unfortunately in this divided political climate while um, it is isn't a politically convenient position to help refugees right now um, as Robert mentioned with the far right and because of this few politicians have had the courage to actually act like leaders in this crisis um, so why do we have a moral duty to help those people? Uh, it's not an understatement to say that European nations have completely failed. and I'm just not And um, their responsibilities towards their neighbours—we all have moral responsibilities—and um, to help those less fortunate than ourselves. And having these ten developing countries hosting more than eighty percent of the world's ra- refugees is a disgrace and um, that's something we're going to be ashamed of in the future. Um, an argument here sometimes is we don't have the space for already so generous to asylum seekers and that's not true. Uh, refugees make up only 0.18% of the total population of Britain right now, it's a couple of th- hundred thousand people, and only about 4- 40% of applications for refugee status are actually granted in Britain, um, so it's not an easy country to get refugee status in. Um, so anybody who says that don't, you don't have the space doesn't understand the crisis that these people are, are facing. Um, uh, by ignoring appeals for humanitarian aid and leaving refugees stranded in Calais like this, we have left UN agencies unable to cope with the sheer numbers, um, and unable able to provide the basic refugee uh, requirements for people fleeing war and persecution. Um, we've seen other countries like Canada, by the way, we've resettling about thirty thousand in the past year. We're we were resettling twenty thousand in the next four years. Um, so it's just not a moral outrage that I would suggest that we are shirking our responsibilities to the world. Um, point. Yeah.
5: It's, you say that we have that moral obligation to help people. Nations like the UK and France are continuing repeated airstrikes on Syria. Is there not a hypocrisy to say we have a moral
3: obligation to help people whose homes we're destroying? I mean, that's, that would be part of my point, you know, <laughs> too. I'm not saying that here defending airstrikes, planning strikes the imagination. Um, but, yeah, so I think this is just another reason why we should take people in. We're the ones that are making the middle east. We're the ones that should help people. Fear, um, so they and as Rob pointed out I think it's really important as well to not see these people just like numbers or like numbers in a paper run by Murdoch or on a poster behind Farage in an election campaign. That kind of talk is unworthy of a nation who wants to lead in the world like the UK I hope does. Uh, Don't we want to live in a country which can defend as far-minded, open, tolerant, one which looks after its neighbours and cares for the most vulnerable among us? Um, And as as you rightly pointed out, we made a mess in the Middle East. Uh, Many of ISIS's leaders are members of the army that the IS disbanded after the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. Um, We left a vacuum when we had no plan of what to do after regime change. Um, And what happened to the spirit of tolerance and cooperation in Europe? After World War II we were so ready to help and set up so many organisations and now it's just disappeared. It seems like it only refers to people that are like us, or that we can see. Um, So yeah, ladies and gentlemen, it's not just our moral duty to help refugees, it is actually a moral outrage if we don't. If we don't recognise our moral duty to help refugees, we will be on the wrong side of history. Fortress Europe is an embarrassment now and in the future, and we should help people who come to our shores in desperation, persecution or fear, just as we want to be treated. Um, if the tables were turned someday. Um, and I'd just like to leave you with something that happened today at the Amnesty QV demonstration in front of the landing building. A guy actually came up to us who was a refugee um, from Turkey and he said that he wouldn't sign our petition or, or help us or support us because he was so let down by the government, he's homeless right now. Um, and, and I just wanted to point it out that that's the legacy we're leaving if we keep going with the policy um, of not accepting people, not integrating them into our communities. Um, so this that actually are related with our approach, with the history books, and to our children. Um, we must change the attitudes of some parts of the population and some of our, the policies of our government. I strongly encourage the House to support the motion that European nations have moral duty to accept refugees. Thank you, Thank you very much for that. And uh, this house now
0: welcomes the external computer left to the floor, and I'm going to run behind you really brutally and grab water at the same time.
7: I mean that's not my full name. Um make that point. Yeah, uh, I'm back. Third, third week in a row. Um so yeah, I mean you mentioned about being in the wrong side of history, you know, in, in our moral duty. Well, uh, I'm gonna look at what history actually says about our track record for our moral duty, and then see what that says, for instance. Um, so let's examine the moral hazard of our moral duty. We had a moral duty. Right, as a Labour government, um, in taking down Saddam Hussein, I think you briefly mentioned that we went in, we basically torched most of their country's infrastructure. Uh, we didn't have a plan after we had them executed, um, so we left power vacuum. Extremist groups vied to fill that power vacuum, and as such, the biggest, baddest, cruelest, the one who was willing to do whatever was necessary in order to win, won because that's the way of the world. And that became direct, which, of course, was the seeds of ISIS. We also had moral duty in Libya, where Gaddafi was using tanks to put down protests. Well, in part of that, we armed rebels who were anti-the West. Uh, we gave them officers who trained them and how to best deal with the military. And that all resulted in came to a point where Gaddafi was sodomized with a knife in a syrup uh, pipe. You know, uh, sodomized with a knife and a syrup pipe in a ditch. And a video was taken of that. Justice, that's not the justice I stand for. Um, then Syria, we had a moral duty in Syria, and that seems to be the most pertinent issue. Um, so we thought we learned uh, from the previous issues, but our uh, moral duty in that case uh, came to um, sending weapons into an already incredibly unstable situation, which added further fuel of fire, which left it so unstable that it left it weak. It left it weak to ISIS expansion. So let's, let's take account of what's happened. We sowed the seeds of ISIS in Iraq with our sense of moral duty. We armed them to the teeth with our sense of moral duty in Libya. And then we created instability, which allowed for their expansion in Syria. Go team. Well done in our moral duty. And now we're left with a crisis that is the legacy, which is the legacy of this moral duty, and now we're talking about it again. No, i but the definition of man is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I am sick to death of hearing this uh, rhetoric. Um, go ahead. Just on that point, surely
5: taking in refugees is not doing the same thing as sending. people. I'm getting that point, I'm
7: getting that point. Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> Well, it's, it's important to set up the context because we're sort of looking at this through a sort of uh, blinkered view here. You know, we're seeing this mankind crisis when we going, oh, woe is the world. And yes, it is a terrible, terrible thing. But it is incredibly unwise uh, to forget to analyse the source of this and how this came about. And what I want to tackle here is just the insanity that it is to take these same concepts, these same moralising opinions, and this self-righteous, sanctimonious arrogance, that you somehow have a monopoly of morality in saying that you know what, which it, the policy of the left thus far, particularly in the most regressive policies we seem to be seeing today, um, no thanks, no thanks. Um, it has undermined national and international law, refusing to acknowledge um, the procedures in place for asylum seekers, uh, and, the, and the likes of Angela merkel To have the gall to stand up and say, Europe's doors are open. Big neon sign saying, come here. We all want you. On what democratic mandate did she make that decision? On what democratic mandate? She had no place to talk for the entire EU or any European country at that point. She made a promise she couldn't keep and can't keep and hasn't kept and is now a hypocrite in pulling back her policies on that. And her popularity rating is a five-year low. I would be surprised in France. I would be surprised if she gets elected again, although the AFD uh, are 20 points behind, so hey, uh, who knows. Really, the point I want to make here is just the short-sightedness of it. The real short-sightedness of just not thinking it through, not having a plan. We see a child's body wash up on the cor- uh, a child's corpse wash up on a beach in Greece, no thanks. Um And that made it real for a lot of people, right? Uh, people in their, you know, Starbucks outbreak Towers drinking their skimmed milk, milk frappuccinos delving into their horoscopes, all of a sudden I was like, wow, the world's a terrible place at the moment. Well, it was already a terrible place. Look at Yemen. You know what I mean? Look at all the starvation that's happening there since 2014 and we're only here about this now. I mean, when you have this naive mindset of, oh, we're going to heal the world. We're going to fix it all. We don't have the ability to do that. It's a world of finite resources. You can't just tackle all the problems. You're my team. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just tackle all. The, <laughs> you can't just tackle all the worst problems yourself. It's incredibly naive, and because of the short-sightedness, it's been incredibly destructive thus far. So I want to raise a sort of moral, um, sort of uh, um, parable, maybe at this moment. So my own. Um, so imagine you have a road, right? And On each side of the road, you have a, you know, a pavement and there's a beggar on the left side of the pavement, beggar on the right. And you, being, say, an affluent student, uh, happened to walk along the left-hand side of the path, and you see this beggar, and you see that he wants for so much, and you want for nothing, and you lament the state of the world with a very soft heart. And you walk up to him, and you while stuck with cash, you hand him, say, a thousand quid, right? Hypothetically. And he takes that, and he's so thankful, his eyes well up with tears at just... just this opportunity he's been given and all of a sudden now he has all his hopes and dreams of possible. And the student walks away, thinking that he's done something great. Meanwhile, on the right-hand side of the street, you have the elder beggar, and he sees what the elder beggar on the left-hand of the street has just been given, and he's jealous. He sees that and he goes, well, how did he earn that? I picked this spot, I get a better tip than him. Who's he to suddenly just get this? And so he follows him as he goes away, getting to the left, wherever, maybe get a haircut, Takes him into an alleyway, smashes his head off the wall, digs greedily into his pocket, takes out the thousand quid and whatever he picked up that day. Meanwhile, the student's still sitting there in his lecture theatre, you know, with his mates getting congratulated for his charity. But let me just uh, point out that everyone in the situation, as a result of that, has lost something. The um, student has lost the perspective of the situation. He thought he's done something good. But what he's done is he's given the most cruelest gift you can give, and that is the gift of falsehood. The Guy who had the money, well, he has back to square one. But he's even less back to square one. His expectations have been dashed. And of course, the guy on the right-hand side of the road has lost his innocence and possibly his liberty as a result. Now, of course, this is an absurd situation, right? It is an absurdity. But I want to point out that moral actions with good intentions can have unexpected and devastating consequences. And I ask you to think this through, and be careful in your approach to this, rather than just saying this moral duty, which history shows has been a moral hazard. Thank you.
0: Thank you for that, Mr. Neal, on uh, that challenge, uh, <laughs> <laughs> can we welcome the third speaker from the proposition, Mr. Jack
11: Thank you very much, Mr. President. And first, I'd like to apologize for my lateness. Unfortunately, my printer wasn't working. So uh about five to seven, I was rushing around, texting, them, asking if any, of they, and if any of them could help. And thankfully, they did the last minute. But. Here. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to begin with what I believe is, I know it is about the moral argument for accepting refugees. But I do think that the legal argument is important, too. And I think that they are inevitably interconnected we have seen after World War II, international human rights have all become the norm. And that has certainly changed people's attitudes in terms of refugees and other things. So first of all, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 14 says, everyone has the right to seek and to enjoy in other countries asylum from persecution. And the 1951 convention related to the status of refugees, Article 1, says that anyone who is uh, unable to avail themselves of the protection of their country or, who's unwilling, or who are unable sorry to return to it should avail of such protection and I certainly believe that if we look at Syria and Iraq and other countries definitely those two circumstances are fulfilled. I feel there is also an important precedent and people have talked about how this is the biggest refugee crisis since World War II but we only need to look at World War II and see how Europe has failed frankly failed to help Jewish refugees there in 1938, there was the Kinder transport, in which the UK took 100,000 unaccompanied children. That was after a lot of pressure from certain individuals, and the government was still very reluctant to help. <coughs> Unfortunately, as, uh, as we know, no other European country could help because they were subsequently occupied by the Nazis, and we all know the horrific consequences of that. Interestingly enough, actually, one of the few places of refuge was actually the Middle East. There were refugees from southern Europe, particularly Greece and Italy. We fled to camps in Palestine, Egypt, and Syria, especially the biggest one is actually Aleppo. So there is a strange sort of contrast there. Even if we look at the 10,000 in the Kindertransport, is still—I mean—we've got at the moment the UK government committing to 20,000 in the next four years, which is certainly far too low. So the current estimate from the UNHCR (coughs) is that there are 4. 4.8 Uh, four point eight million refugees in the world. That was as of march twenty sixteen, so it's probably risen from that. Oh Syrian refugees, sorry, not refugees as a whole. In the last in over the course of twenty fifteen, there were over one million refugees who arrived on European shores by boat. Thirty seven thousand of those have disappeared and are presumably, and are presumed to be dead, I imagine. Which is nothing short of a disgrace on Europe's behalf. It is probably also worth noting that many of the problems in the Middle East actually, you could argue, are Europe's fault. They stem back to when, during the First World War, when the British and French empires basically split the various countries between them. So, for example, France took Syria and Iraq and a few others, the UK took Palestine and Arabia and a few others. And they weren't very good in terms of providing for the various ethnic groups. The Kurds, for example, are completely ignored. On that point? Yep to peak up
10: because that yeah. it does tend to reappear in contemporary Middle Eastern politics. However, it's unfair to tie that legacy back to Europe, for the reason being it's with due to the unique dynamics involved in the Middle East, it's impossible to distribute ethnic minorities within a line without without the country as picture being completely unviable due to overlapping borders. But you mentioned specifically the legal precedent on which the refugee system is based, namely the UN Declaration of Human Rights and the Dublin Accords. However, it's commonly assumed now, at least within the international community, that said agreements are left the wayside of history ever since the de facto opening of the borders with Italy, and Greece, towards the rest of the world. So yeah,
11: uh, but yeah, how, how, how would you build an effective agreement off what's already agreed? Um, well, on your second point regarding the Dublin Regulation, I'm actually going to get on that in a minute, but certainly regarding the, as I said, the, the agreement that split up the Middle East, I do think obviously it was a completely different situation. It was still the era of colonialism, but nonetheless, that is. there are obviously many other factors. You know, there's the rise of various extremists in Iran and other countries. is certainly something later on. You know, we saw the Iranian Revolution and the Soviets invade Afghanistan. There are all sorts of reasons, but that was certainly the first one. So, between April t- 2011 and August t- 2016, the number of Syrian asylum, ac- uh, Syrian asylum sorry, applications to the UK was just over 10,000. In Ireland, it was only 224. This can be effectively contrasted with Turkey, who has accepted, as of February 2016, 2.8 million refugees or Lebanon, just over a million, or Jordan, 600,000, yep. As you talk about then our moral obligation to take in these numbers, Germany, for example, opened up its borders and took in hundreds of thousands of refugees, which
5: included gangs of murderers and rapists who pillaged the streets of Berlin. Do you think we have a moral obligation
11: for those sorts of people who are no doubt to be included within large quantities of refugees coming into the nations? Well, would certainly support, you know, background checks and stuff like that, but I think that would be completely unfair to assume that. You see, for example, the, the Paris and Brussels stacks. People said Donald Trump and the like were saying, oh, my God, look, these are, you know, look, these immigrants or these refugees, we can't let them into our country when most of them were born in Paris or Brussels. So. On that point, sir. Yep. Um, yeah. I think it's absolutely reasonable to assume that if
7: we bring in a, a large group of people who are ideologically linked, particularly to the violent of that ideology, do you not think that will provide a support network for extremism of which, attacks, the process attacks, and these attacks will be reflectable. Do you think that's
11: um, I can see your point, but I do feel that, once again, it is, you know, with these people here, there's a problem here in terms of, you know, people, certainly, some of them feeling isolated, and, you know, people like ISIS being able to take control of that, but still feel that is this works through some of the generalization, so. Um, I just have two brief points that i make, I think I'm in the last minute, but, in regards to an EU-wide, we, need an e- we needed an EU-wide uh, deal in order to deal with these certain problems. The Dublin regulation has proved to be ineffective. The EU-Turkey deal, frankly, was disgraceful. It goes against the principle of non-refoulement from Article 33 of the 1951 Convention. And frankly, they've, so they've certainly failed on that. My final point is that. Uh, we do need to confront the argument that refugees are, you know, they need to confront the likes of the Daily Mail and stuff. We are putting out this rhetoric, this disgraceful rhetoric. We can't forget that basically in the Daily Mail people were <coughs> saying the exact same thing about Jewish refugees back in 1938. So certainly we have an obligation now to take care of and help as many refugees as possible. Thanks very so much.
0: closing the argument for the opposition
6: is a Mr. movement. Good evening everyone. Um, so, a little bit of a pre-warning. I only agreed to do this debate about an hour ago, so this is going to be an absolute waffle from start to finish. But, <laughs> regardless, and I was really, really desperately hoping that you guys would give me a lot of points for a rebuttal, but I've pretty much got a light like, in a half, so I'm going to have to go off the top of my head. See, their arguments were fantastic, and I really, on an emotional level, I agree with it across the board, but there's a difference between sentiment and pragmatism. So what they proposed was kind of our typical, kind of, we want to help, the, the fluffy notions, but what I would propose is real morality, is actually dealing with what is continuing, for example, the Syrian civil war, what kind of forces are propagating all of, the, all of the conflicts across the region. So I'm not even just talking Syria. The same is happening in Libya. The same is happening in Iraq. There are the same forces all over the Middle East which have got a very direct ideolo- ideology. And guess what? We support them. We, we explicitly support them. So we give them funding. We give them by, by means of aid. We sell them weapons, which they then go on to sell on to the groups that are creating this absolute havoc and mess. We are at loggerheads geopolitically with the supporters of Assad, which means that we cannot actually broker any kind of a peace deal. So it's fantastic. We can say we can bring in as many refugees as we like, but guess what? If you can't stop the panel of those refugees, then that is actually immoral. So we, have, we could, right now, cut the defence contracts that are feeding the weapons indirectly through to Syria. Where is the, mo- where is the, the drive from the public to do this? Instead, we're suggesting that we will take a very small proportion, even if we wanted to take them all. okay, We're talking about taking people away from their homes. Let's be absolutely clear here. Every single one of those refugees, these are not migrants. They're not economic migrants. They are refugees. They want to be living in their homes. So, when we, instead, of, instead of telling them that we're going to move them across the world to a place that they don't know, to a, a culture which often is different, to a language that is different, instead of trying to resolve the exact place where they want to be, that is the true moral question. How do we help
3: those people get back to where they were? Like our team or Amnesty or anyone isn't opposed to a solution to the to the to Assad's crisis, all well, crisis in Syria and other places. But the point is that there are people that are down when they're flying themselves across the Mediterranean. Should we not just help the people with that we can help and also pursue a, like geopolitical solution? You're saying also as if. Is being done. So we've had. How long has the Syrian
6: civil, civil war been there? It's been there since 2011, and we've continued to support the forces that propagate in the civil yeah, war. Still. So that is actually that, that is the true thing that we should be focusing on before anything else, because we need to stop the cause of the of the refugees, <coughs> rather than necessarily just focusing on um, resolving the, the short term issues. Go
5: on. Thanks. And... Um, you mentioned refugees by by their very by the very definition they are they they don't want to leave their homes you know that that, that they are seeking they're not economic migrants should he also by that definition they don't want to leave their homes but they have to is that not you know so yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm I'm not, I'm not
6: I'm not saying that we're literally forcing them to come over here i I, un, I understand that the the idea is what I'm putting forward is that we should be focusing but in terms of morality, the most moral thing would be to kind of try and help them. Uh, restore the place that they're from and, yeah. and, and settle down from the Civil War. Maybe later, Harry. Okay. Um,
2: <laughs>
6: right. So the second point that I want to make, and this is, again, uh, the pragmatism rather than the sentiment. If we look at the direction of travel politically across Europe at the moment, there is only one direction it's going towards. It is tending towards the right. We're seeing it not just in the Eastern European countries where we've seen just like... Overt Islamophobia and kind of borderline xenophobia, like kind of genocidal talk from certain parties there. We've got it here, we've got it in France, we've got a rise of racial, race-hate race attacks across the continent. <coughs> that might not be enough to stop to say that we shouldn't be taking in refugees yet, but it's about the direction of travel. And if you look at where we are politically, there are direct parallels with approximately 1934 Europe. Are we going to bring in these refugees into a climate in which they are going to be hated by, I mean, by, uh, even in this country, you could probably go as far as to say 20 to 30% of the population would be overtly against these people in a matter to, to a, a kind of an aggressive degree. It's even worse across Europe. As this situation gets worse, you are effectively bringing them in to another side of the world after they've just escaped another war zone, rather than uh, in a place where they have abject safety, which is the, um, the, the camps, we're bringing them into another place that is directly hostile against them, and that is the kind of thing which can breed... Actual kind of uh, well terrorist threats here when you 've gone from one kind of war zone to another place which is kind of, uh, which finds you repellent, that is where we actually have a security <coughs> risk here, and we are not necessarily doing the people there um, the massive favors in the long term. What we should be looking at before uh, before anything else is trying to resolve and keeping the people and stop and re- returning them from where they 've been displaced rather than bringing them to a place which is not accepting of, um, of 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 refugees in general, and
3: realistically, gone. Yeah. <laughs> like these people are fleeing a war zone. So I admit that there is racism that exists in the UK. But all these people want is safety. They don't. They're not. Admittedly, they might get like find it hard to get a job. But what they want is a safe place to live with their family. So we shouldn't we'd only have more responsibility to get from that? Okay. Um, I mean, if if we if this early on. We've had
6: such an increase in race-hate attacks, even here in the UK, let alone the rest of the continent, where you've seen, as I said once again, far-right groups rising across the continent. Just because they're safer here now than perhaps for the refugee camps, doesn't mean they will be in one or two years' time. And three, four years' time. And we are not doing anything to try and actually resolve the civil war. So we're almost kind of creating a situation where they're going to feel effectively trapped. right? So I've got 15 seconds left. Uh, Can I just be clear? I don't hold any of these views. I
2: find. (laughs)
0: Three rounds of questions to both the opposition and uh, if you have any general questions on the motion. and Then we'll have our closing remarks by our guest chair. Uh, so if anyone has a question for the Proposition to begin with.
8: Um, uh, Mr Arnold's back there. Uh, Mr Chairman, members to the House. Um, my question is to the, <coughs> the second member of uh, the Proposition has said that he was not condoning airstrikes. But by an extension of his morality, which was essentially to appeal to see if the children and um, is it not that by extension his argument that he has to engage the final speaker of the opposition's point that really what we need to be doing here is solving this, re- is solving this war crisis this hard that in Syria there's displacement of 50% of the population that if, if Syria continues to hemorrhage its population from its borders like we, we can't simply take that amount of people it's just unfeasible for any country in the world to take on millions and millions of refugees we also know that the Syria crisis will not be the last refugee crisis we'll face. Since 1945 we faced you know, hundreds of them. We, we know that like, we can't continue just to take refugees on and on and on. So is it not that Amnesty should be focusing its efforts, trying to rally
3: for a geopolitical solution, rather than just accepting more refugees? Yeah. Um, well, I can understand why you feel like that, but um, basically, what I would say yeah, that hard. is basically that Amnesty is not against a long-term solution, and it's not against a geopolitical solution. But Amnesty's focus is also on the people that are dying while crossing the Mediterranean that don't have anywhere to go, that are in a short, like a short-term solution, as like the Calais camps are. Um, So yeah, we, I, we would probably be behind a geopolitical solution, um, but we're also behind compassion and actually helping the people that um, have no chapter housing then. You know, um, um, uh, the yes, cool. No, it's only oh, yeah.
7: <laughs> Anyone from the opposition might respond to that? Yeah. Um, I think that is an excellent point. Uh, uh, yeah. And that is what we're actually doing. We're being a lot more sophisticated and nuanced in our approach to this problem militarily than we have been in the past. Specifically, instead of bringing a hacksaw or surgery, we're bringing a scalpel. Uh, we're importing special ops uh, SAS. They've been crippling. ISIS's command from the inside, causing chaos in the ranks as part of the reason why the Jordanian military have been su- successful in taking back many cities. So yeah, that is demonstrably, by the evidence, the best way to go about this rather than simply taking in indefinitely large numbers of pe- uh, people. So I think Thank you
8: for that. Now, any questions to the opposition? Next option. So... You say that yes, we can have a geopolitical solution. That would be a very good long-term solution to this crisis. But there's still a short-term problem. If yes. we don't take in these refugees, mm-hmm. how exactly do you propose we deal with the refugee crisis?
4: Here, okay. 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 Matthew
7: Sullivan. Uh, Yeah, I mean, you bring up a real point there, and I can't possibly dismiss that. They are coming here. It is a reality that we must face. Uh, in facing that, however, we need be a lot more intelligent to about how we do it. For instance, we have laws. We must audit people. Uh, we must know who we're bringing in uh, there. in, in intelligence services, of course, uh, do background checks. Um, of course, we realise that people come here and they don't have the paperwork, and you know that that's the sad reality. You know, it's it's the nature of being refugee. But we do have processes for asylum seekers, and we can't just put people in sort of nest environment where, of course, as Mo said, we'll be threat as well. I think the best. Compromise, although I really don't like it personally, uh, is to put in temporary camps where we solve this problem. Um, but uh, I, I'm not a fan of that. I'm not a fan of putting refugees under armed guard in a camp. Um, but you know, we we must be pragmatic about this. You know, bring it into our domestic environment, putting pressure on our public services, and all the rest. Of the instability that that would cause, you know, it's it's just we need to think about our own problems as well as end of the problem. Proposition?
5: Yeah. Uh, I don't think I I mean I think everyone would agree that a political solution to the Syrian conflict probably should happen Um, that there should well okay unless you're in Syria but what I'm saying is that unless you're one of the belligerents in the the war what I'm saying is that I don't think anyone would disagree that we need, to, we need to find a solution to this problem. But in the short... And as was mentioned, in the short term, there are still millions of people fleeing war and persecution. Are you... And this is what I understand. Are you seriously going to tell me that when these people are trying to get into Europe, that you're going to turn around and say, you know, you need to go back because we're going to try and find a political solution? Is that, is that, is that, is that the argument that's being made here? Because that is ludicrous. And you... I mean, this... this, this the, the opposition was making a lot... Of, of concerns, quite right concerns, about the practicalities of bringing refugees into Europe. Um, I think that you know, there are certain arguments to be had there. But is that, is, that, is that impractical or moral, to turn them back and say, no, go back to, to war and persecution until we can help find a, a political solution? Quite something ludicrous.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm
2: afraid
4: that we're not going to do back and forth. I'm sorry. No, um, no. Uh, just because no, I don't like you. <laughs> I don't make them very often. Sure, why not? Uh, Jason, uh, yeah. I may have missed you on here, but I just want to clarify something. Do um, you want to state your name for the Earlier on, <laughs> Uh Earlier in the debate, you said um, uh, Mo and Harry, and then Robert briefly brought up calories versus uh, moral obligation. Earlier on in the debate, you said, my question, you said, uh, someone no was on fire wouldn't say, like, oh, when can you turn to your own house? You uh, didn't say that. And then at the very end, you brought up, well, I thought it was a point of class where you talked about the Turkish refugee who came up to you and said that he came here as a refugee but was without house, job, or any security. And you said, is this, is this the disgusting legacy that we want to leave? So earlier on in the debate, you said that, you know, we shouldn't worry about the practical and we should just end on a moral basis. And at the end, you seemed to decry that and say that, that was the legacy to leave. I may be wrong. Can you just clarify that? No, um, I understand.
3: Um, the confusion there, but um, basically what I was saying is, like, look at this, But like, we don't ask someone what is your own term solution in the crisis, you help them in the crisis, and then what I meant by that man was, here's your man, um, he comes to this country, obviously there are practical solutions, it's better, he's than, here than in a war zone, but at the same time, like, he had become so angry and disappointed with the government because his mum couldn't come here, that's another thing I forgot to mention, um, his mum couldn't come here, we had no support for him coming here. Um but like yeah, it's better here than in a war zone in my personal opinion. because um, okay, cool. the Calais camps aren't a long term solution. Um, and you, you know, you can't go back to Syria. People forget people are talking about sending these people back to Syria. I don't know whether any of these have seen Syria recently, but there's very little to go back to in some situations, uh, in a lot of the areas. Um, so yeah that's what I meant by Would
0: you like to respond to that? Um.
3: Yeah, uh, I'd just like to commend
6: Jason, but for bringing up um, a case which I mean does slightly undermine his own point, but <laughs> it's an important thing to hear about. And but this is again the point I was making about direction of travel. So we had a more liberal Tory Prime Minister beforehand. Let's be under no illusion, Theresa May is significantly to the right. Okay, she's very anti-immigration. This man would have come to uh, would have come to Northern Ireland before Theresa May, and once again. This is, we're creating a, a, a place where if they came over, they would be vilified, they would not be supported and to be honest with if you, if if, if you, if anyone watched the Tory conference last Thursday, I'm not sure we should really
0: have to put that on anyone. <laughs> and another question for the proposition, uh, for yourself sir? Um, Would you just like to uh, state your name for the record? Uh, Colin. Isn't that a question for the
12: opposition? Yeah, it's the other side. I just
2: have some
12: for I thought that was a uh, like a point no, no, already no, had. No. no, 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 we'll no. All right, yeah, go with your point. Uh, so yeah, the proposition was, and, and I think it's interesting just to note that uh, Britain is the second biggest contributor to the man disaster, only yeah. behind the US. So whenever people like do quote like. The two big brothers just doing nothing. I think that is the There is more there is more political reasons behind it. Um I would also like to think like you talk about UK's involvement, let's not remember that it was them and Big Brother in World War II, who came in from the West, defeated family in which in Europe which caused all the disaster. I wouldn't have a defend British military and many things they've done. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not forget some of the good things like they're before the biggest contributors in the whole of Europe to the Mount out. And secondly, I think just it's an open, I don't really support this point, but it is an open point that the right here, make. Um, and it is just the case that why is it that um, you made the example of going from a door to door after a fire. Why is it that the people the refugees are going 17 blocks away rather than the next door neighbour for refuge? Why is it that they're going through Turkey? They're going through Czech Republic? Why not stop in Germany? Germany's nice. Just look, why go the whole way to Calais and then just crossing the channel? I don't hold this point, but this is, this is the point before I make. Why go all that way and risk, as you say, that terminal? You know, yeah. got Blake wall there. Yeah, I mean, well, on, sorry. Well, I <laughs> not... <laughs> It isn't was
3: it, <laughs> it was not Oh, sorry, was that for you? Was it? <wasn't>. What? <laughs> what? <And> no, <laughs> it was <laughs> actually for you, but
5: okay. Well, well we answer any yeah. Yeah, wow, okay. Yeah.
3: Um, yeah, all of us tell us basically that these countries, the bordering countries are already taking an awful lot, like, you know, the I mentioned those 10 developing countries that are taking over 80%, um, people do want to go to Europe um, for a number of reasons, and one of which I would hope, to be honest, is that we have a reputation of being tolerant and open. Um, and I would hope that's one of the reasons why people come. But as I said, like the border states are of Syria are doing more than their first share right now, um, and it's just proving what the Dublin re- regulation didn't foresee. Um, so yeah.
7: Oppositional respond? No. Well, um, well, if anything, I'd like to take this opportunity to point out the straw man that you painted my me? arguments. Um, no one was suggesting refoulement. At all. Um, in fact, if we accept someone and we have a legal obligation not to refer to them. Um, they're here in temporary accommodation until we can make it so that they can go back. That was the one these <coughs> That in camps. Well, I mean, like in mean, there's an interesting thing, you know. It's, it's like, no, but I, didn't I didn't answer the question, answer he no. answered the previous question. In, in, in Angela Merkel, you know, she so, so find out she wanted to say, Europe's doors are open, and I suppose it's to make up the past sense, but it seems that whenever Germany gets involved in the world stage, it always ends up with copying people in camps. <laughs> uh, moving on <laughs> uh, moving on from that a little bit development. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: You're new. You're new. you new. you Anyway, uh, question two. <laughs> I don't know, I <laughs> You know? <laughs> the question is now to the, the... I am so confused. Obviously. Opposition. Opposition yeah. now, yeah. Um No, no
5: yeah. second like proposition. you in the back
0: there. Yes. you the back end. Okay,
1: uh, I have a comment for you, the second speaker. of the. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, I disagree with the statement because Angela Merkel was the only one who actually did something for the refugees. She let them in, and there are actually 800,000 refugees in Germany, not a million. And as far as I know from some of them, they want to go back to Syria or to their country, so they won't stay in Europe, and they need somewhere to go. And I think Angela Merkel is going to be re-elected, so...
7: It was a complete <laughs> joke, it was just a wind up. But um, yeah, sure. you know, you know, no substance at all
0: whatsoever. Um, so. Uh, <laughs> uh, could we just
1: get your name for the record as well, sir? Uh, it's
0: Sophia Lacour. Thank you very much
5: for that. Uh, the proposition want to be judged during execution. Could I just, could I just kind of come in on, on that point um, and say that I, I totally, totally agree. Um, I think that Angela Merkel um, has been um, a force for good when it comes to the refugee crisis, up until quite, quite recently, when she has been forced um, to U-turn. And I know you mentioned about, about Angela Merkel, um, about her saying that Europe um, about refugees should come to Europe, and that she has no right to speak on behalf of Europe. And you know that, that is a fair point. But I do think that European leaders... They do need to work together, and European leaders like, like Angela Merkel should be saying that we do have the, this this moral this moral <coughs> obligation to accept. I, I mean, I'd much rather you know Angela Merkel saying it than us sitting here in a university arguing it. I think it's good that heads of state and heads of government are saying that we do have this this uh, this obligation. But I, I do think that we do have to be careful in saying that that I, and, and saying Angela Merkel. Uh, in some kind of great light, uh, in, 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 in light of, of, of the, the recent U-turn. Um, but I do mostly agree with, with everything that he said. Thank you for that. Uh, uh, why did
0: my break, voice have to break it? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, any abstention questions, comments on the motion itself? Uh, Mr Muller, I see you're eager to stand up in <laughs> the room. Yes, absolutely. Well,
8: I just wanted to explore a few ideas because I felt that there were some points that perhaps could have been mentioned. I mean, generally uh, this is an outstanding point, but it's it's sort of directed to both as well, both sides. Um, basically, there seemed to be a general consensus that this house should act. But the interesting thing was there was a dichotomy essentially between either accepting refugees or what was the other option, <coughs> finding a political solution. Magically pulling it out of <laughs> um, um, what, I, what I would like to explore is just this, this question: With limited funds, what actions can we undertake that would produce the best consequences? Is using funds to uh, integrate refugees to bring them into our countries the best, the most effective ways of saving lives? Now, if we look at refugees coming, um, especially given the open invitation from some European leaders what happened was it really sparked a huge migration and many refugees on this route to Europe had to take a dangerous, had, to, had a dangerous journey. So if we look at the, the number of deaths, the number of deaths that occurred on, on this journey, would, would, it, would it perhaps be reasonable to say perhaps it would be better had we allocated funds to bring aid to them, to bring aid to the refugees in Jordan, in Turkey, in Libya, and instead, instead of this open door policy, that may have—I'm just asking you to consider—it may have resulted in dangerous, unnecessarily dangerous journeys and and the death of, of um, many migrants. So,
11: do I think? What
8: do you want to say first? Yeah. Um,
11: <coughs> yeah, no, I absolutely agree. In terms of, first of all, we do need to keep providing aid <coughs> to Turkey, to Lebanon, to Jordan, but. At the same time, they, especially Jordan, are relatively small countries, I think. Lebanon has about the same population as Ireland, with 4 million, and they've got well over a million refugees. So it would be unfair to just say these three countries, that they must take as many as possible. I think Europe is much bigger, Europe is a lot richer, Europe should take as many as we can as well. And in terms of the other point, the first point regarding, you know, should we find a solution or should we take more refugees. I think, To be honest, you have to do both. I don't think there's going to be a solution in a long time because we've got you know, Putin in, in te- as intense as possible on bombing Aleppo and other places to keep Assad in power. We've still got ISIS who at the moment look like they're on the decline, but you know, you could have another group that comes up. So I don't think it'll be a long time until there is a proper solution. So for the meantime, we just have to make sure that as many refugees in those countries as possible are protected and I think the best do that would be Europe.
0: Thank you. Can
9: I stand mean, with the opposition to the response? This isn't necessarily is a direct rebuttal to, to what's been said. But I was speaking from a purely emotional point of view, you kind of, yeah, you know, what we just heard kind of raised the question made? Well, why? Would, well, why hasn't the political solution been found um I mean the s the Syria cra- the Syria didn't begin yesterday or even last year. It began uh if memory serves back in twenty eleven, so at the of uh, spring. So what have we so what have we have we been doing for the past five years? We, it's it's sounds as we, we it sounds as though the uh though the, you know the world as a whole has been playing you know has been playing the liar while while while, while Syria burns and um you know and and yeah, um, and yeah, 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 Except that you know that you know, can't be found overnight. But you know, what did, what have What did I say to Russia? What was Everybody been doing for the last five years?
0: For that. Um, I think because uh, we're actually quite pressed for time, uh, we'll move on to the closing statements of our wonderful team. Uh, if you'd like to come on up and address it from up here. <laughs> <laughs> <Still
1: forgot it>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I listened quite intently to everything had to say. There were so many points made, and uh, many of them Surprisingly, even on the, the side which where the speakers themselves confess that they, they don't necessarily believe in their motion. <laughs> um, we're actually very effective points, many of them. Um, so I'll like going through everything that everyone said, um, I'll try to sum up. Uh, so I find that the proposing team um, ranged from very emotive range from emotive appeals to a slight of a reliance on fact sometimes. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I would agree. Yeah, but that, that goes for everyone, so you know. Um, I thought that points that were well made by your team were that the rise in right wing populism has distorted the debate across Europe and it's it's been a big game changer. Um, I really liked your point Jason about moral relativity in our societies and how we aspire to help those who've lost everything in our own society, so why wouldn't we extend that to others? Um, That was a point effectively made. Um, You also highlighted bias and racial profiling in the case of the Paris attacks, and how that was perhaps the same case in Germany. Um, And that sort of effectively rebutted the point that was put to you, I thought. Um, Points where I thought maybe... Merited more consideration where uh, you had lots of clear examples of why you thought there was a moral duty, but you didn't really propose any solutions in, in the long term, which was kind of brought up by your side quite effectively. What are the long-term solutions? Um, and again, well, sorry to bring it up again, but facts and figures. I think the thing is, facts and figures are great in debates, but only if they're, the, if they're not used as fillers. They mm-hmm. have to be used... With purpose and impact. So you've got to be careful about that. Um, I think that that's, um, although there definitely is room for facts and figures, which, you know, uh, let's see. So, and finally, I think you made a good point about is this a temporary <coughs> phenomenon or is it a protracted phenomenon? And so I think that's where you did address the long term issue. Um, on the other side, I thought that um, as, as a team, it was a real mixture of different types of approach to the to the question. Um, I think you I think did link it through. There was, a, there was a through thread, but it was at times a bit of a bit of a bit of a curve there. Um, so you kind of ranged from concern and perhaps somewhat justifiable pessimism about our capacity as a society to help people, even people who are already here. It's something that is raised quite often, I think we all know, Um, (coughs) to rhetoric, which was very effective, but a little unnerving at points. (laughs) And finally, a summary speech, which I thought was very personable, and um, I thought you flipped the argument well on its head about, that's where I stopped making notes on the (laughs) stage, when I go back here, you turned the argument very effectively on its head about should intervention be used instead of acceptance of refugees? Well, um, that was a valid point made by this slide. Uh, let's see. And also again, it's a controversial point, but it's a valid point. Uh, ostracized communities can foster extremism. And that's something that uh, wasn't really put to you, but it's something that your side of the argument also have to consider in the long run um outside of the debate perhaps if we're thinking about the subject more broadly um okay i thought there was a point about yeah there was a point about it being fashionable and that the sort of popular uh (laughs) Attention that was given after Alan Curdy was sort of a, an example of it's fashionable to help people, but there was no real justification of that. Um, was it, uh, there was no real justification of it being a self serving action. Um, and let's see, yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's all really. But I think that both teams spoke incredibly effectively on the issue, particularly given that perhaps you don't agree with it. And um, it's it really just comes down to the overall impression that was left by for all of you. And so yeah, and I really hope I wasn't too biased. <laughs>
0: Well, on that note, I'd like to thank our guest chair and the Amnesty Society of QV and Northern Ireland General for uh, coming along and covering this with uh, this with us tonight. Uh, before we go to a vote, I'd just like to give them another round of applause. And on that note, we will head to a vote. So this first vote is on prior your opinions prior to the debate having taken place this evening. If you were in favour of the motion before this evening, please raise your hands and say aye. Keep it quite high so we can count. What was the motion again? This House (coughs) believes that that European states have a moral duty
4: to take refugees. That's less the high, folks. (laughs) the House
9: 45.
0: Does uh, he get the motion?
4: Yeah. I got the last
0: one. <laughs> uh, anyone of them going to abstain sort of on the motion? In. Yeah. Yeah, we'll yep. The <laughs> right one. Well And this next vote is on, uh, I want to say speaker performance, yeah, Uh, (coughs) because that's what it's on. Uh, So if you thought the proposition spoke best tonight, they had the most convincing case, uh, please raise your hands again and say aye. Those who felt the opposition spoke better tonight. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and if you thought both sides spoke equally well or equally rubbish, please raise your hand. Say, "Man."
2: <laughs> <laughs> And
0: uh, and what can only be described as a rather close vote, Uh, I believe the motion has passed. And because I'm an idiot, and I have forgot to do two announcements at the start, uh, before we all go off and have pints and uh, simple, more scintillating conversation and the like. Um, one, the Irish Times competition is coming up. We have two team spots for that, which means we have, uh, we have space for four speakers. If anyone is interested in competing in that, the first round of that is on Saturday, the 22nd uh, location, GBC. Uh, so if you're interested in speaking with that, come speak to me or Rob at any point during the course of this evening. Uh, also, uh, our, oh, our open competition uh, where comp- uh, <coughs> institutions from all over the UK send their teams to debate in um, the two-day competition at Queen's University, Belfast. here. Uh, it's happening on the 29th, 30th of October. We have uh, three team slots for that, which means we're looking for six speakers. Yeah, because I not do My metal lamp in my head. i should actually say four speakers because one of those teams has actually taken up even though they haven't registered yet. Uh, You're one of them, but you haven't registered yet so get a um, uh, <laughs> yeah, to get yeah. on. What point did Mo advance in the Irish Times last year, Mr. President? He, uh, it's quite impressive, apparently. Yeah, um, he got <laughs> to the semi-final, uh, so very well done. <laughs> uh, so the thing about was, uh, as part of the competition, it's kind of uh, up to the society that's hosting the competition. Uh, to provide crush for everyone who's competing. So if you'd like to open your doors to your tiered, it's a very small <laughs> <level laughs> crowd, um, uh, in the start of this motion, actually, I mean, uh, accept death to shoot debaters from all across the world uh, into your, your small plots and get drunk with them. Uh, yeah, so you're mm-hmm. uh, uh, if,
7: if I may, uh, may I uh, say a few words very quickly before we all part? On what on what matter? Uh, on, on the matter of just uh, how this, how the arguments expressed are not necessarily the beliefs of the House, the the Household. And I have been deliberately abrasive, so my points would say, humour, but uh, I, I don't want to make light of what this is. This is a real serious issue and a real crisis. Um, and I think and I hope that this has shed some light on both arguments, mm-hmm. which of course both do have some basis. Um, and I just want to
0: well, thank you very much for that clarification. I'd like to thank all of our speakers here and our chair and co host for what has been, I hope, a very informative debate, a very respectful debate given the contentious issues uh, at hand, so very well done to all involved. And another applause, and we'll head on the board. for a photograph?